meet our mom, Kelly Hutchison. She is a life coach. She is a child counselor. She is a teacher. She's a parent coach. And she's a mom to us. She will teach you to stop yelling at your kids. She will teach you to get your kids to lesson. She will teach you how to never sleep with mommy guilt again. She will teach you how to be an imperfect mom. So you can help your kids be imperfect too. And have harmony in the home. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 35, the Emotional Literacy Lab. Now that's a tongue twister. Before I start, I want to thank all of you for posting about a podcast that speaks to you and you're tagging me in stories and tagging me on Instagram and sharing it with your friends and families. And, 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 Grady always talks in threes. He's always like, and, 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 or, but, 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 but. And he starts off every sentence with just to say, just to say, that's how he starts every single sentence. And when you write a review, that speaks so highly to iTunes about like, hey, we might want to give a little bit more attention and put this in other people's feed so other people and you can help other families and other children. Because when you write a review, then iTunes says, huh, what's going on over here? Let's send this out to all the other mamas and all the other dadas and all the other caregivers. So You are spreading all this like wildfire and I love it, love it, love it so much. And that's such a compliment to me and it helps me keep going. And it's like I always say, the gas to my car because this, my friend, is not easy. Putting yourself out there, not an easy task. And Samantha said, Kelly, you are amazing. I've been working on a project alone for two days, eight hours a day. You know what that means? I got caught up on all of your podcasts, smiley face. So many good points. I finally get what it means to hold space. Oh, I love when you get your ahas. Please know our household is forever changed. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for all of your precious time and energy. My sweet friend, it matters. So much love and gratitude to you and your dad. Come on. He is absolutely precious. I know, right? It's so crazy. And when I became a parent, I was like, well, I have to be just like my mom and just like my dad because I put them on this huge pedestal and they were God and they were God, God and God Jr. And so that was a lot of pressure I put on myself and I had to be the perfect parent. So I want you to go back and listen to how to be the perfect parent because when you know that you have the perfect child that is here to teach you how to grow and that your child has the perfect parent, then everything else is B minus. And that is true freedom because then you can enjoy the as is of all the things and not have expectations. And like Christine Hassler has a book called Expectation Hangover because when we get so riddled in judgment and expectations and manuals and agendas and rules, all the humans mess all of it up. But when we know that control underneath control is always rooted in fear and not good enoughness and lack, then we can be like, oh, I don't have to heal my old pain through my children. I can just recognize it and be aware of it. And that is true freedom. So when I was teaching first grade, which was one of my favorite grades to teach of all the grades, because the kids would come to me, not all of them, but most of them, and knowing just a few sight words, just a handful of sight words. Now first grade's turning in like, you have to start first grade knowing chapter books and knowing like how to read Harry Potter in first grade. However, when I was in the first grade, well, when I, not me with Ms. Armstrong, but when I was a first grade teacher as Miss Stout, Miss Stout Smarties, and then I got married to my boo, David, and became Miss Hutchison's Heroes, 
When I was teaching first grade at Naples Park, go Sharks, love that place, I was in the same classroom next to Sally Ayers for, I think, 15 years, and there was no windows in my room. I digress. I loved my room, but there were no windows in the in the room. And so Sally became like my roommate, like my neighbor. Like we were just like dorm mates. It was so fun. And we made so many amazing memories. And while we were teaching, we had different concepts of how to teach reading to kids because when they only knew a handful of words, they had to know, they, they came in sometimes, sometimes they didn't even know their letters. So I would have to teach them their letters, their sounds, then sight words, then those sight words within the sentence structure, and then multiple sentences. I mean, that's a huge leap for kids to do. So let's just say the average first grader had just a handful of sight words. And by the end of first grade, they were expected to know 220 sight words. That was the goal. I'm sure the numbers are much different these days. But the way that we taught as a first grade team that was super effective and our reading scores were always very high and our reading levels would shoot through the roof, we would do three concepts of reading that were very effective. First, we would all sit on the on the rug. And remember, there's lots of varieties of levels within the first grade classroom. There's 26 and seven-year-olds. Most of them are six and they turn seven that year. So there's 20 of them all in the same room with all varied levels of reading. Very difficult, but very doable. So we would sit on the rug and we would they would all sit on their bottoms and we would read a very large book. They're called big books. We'd read them together. I would use my pointer. We would get to words we didn't know. We would do it together. And so the experience was the students were sharing. That's why it was called shared reading. Hello. They would join in and they would share the reading and read along with me. And there was a lot of support for me as the teacher. And so I was modeling for them the skills of what a proficient reader looks like. And sometimes they would be like, oh, it's kind of like when you're singing a song and you don't know the words and then you start singing and then they're completely wrong. Like I used to think, this is really embarrassing. I'm blushing, but you can't see it. I used to think the song Shameless by Garth Books. I used to think it was, I'm shaving. Like what? Why would I think that song was I'm shaving? What? So I get words to songs wrong quite a bit. And so the students that the book was too difficult for, they would just kind of follow along. And when they would get to the words that they didn't know, kind of like you do in a song, they would just go, and then they would pick up where they did know, like the dog likes to run fast and upstream. So if they got to the word upstream, they would be like, the dog likes to run and up. And so they would just kind of play along and they would see, oh, that my neighbor knows it. Miss Hutchison knows it. Well, I hope I know it. And so they would see what modeling looks like of a proficient reader, and they would see how I was reading with expression when I would get to quotation marks and when I was talking like a elf or when I was talking like an elephant, I'd get really deep. And so they could see how fluency and expression looked like. It's kind of like when I was reading at church when I was little, I used to follow along with the Bible readings and the words were very tricky. And so I would kind of like read ahead a little bit. And then as the speaker would read the words, I would say, oh, that's that word. And so I'd kind of like jump ahead and, and read along. And then I get to a word and I'm like, oh, wow, how'd they figure that out? So that is a very powerful way to teach reading. And like when I was little, I used to, <laughs> I used to listen to Alvin and the Chipmunks on their record player. And the other day, Lily goes, I need one of those things, that circle thing. And you put the needle on it. I'm like you put the needle on the record. 
you put the needle on the record. And I'm like, they're called records. Or maybe that was Grady that asked. And I said, that's called a record player. He's like, yeah, I need one of those. I need one of those. I, I need to trace that circle. <laughs> put the needle on the record. So I used to follow along with the lyrics of Alvin and the Chipmunk songs. And I'd put the needle on the record. And then I would get the words that were sometimes written in the soundtrack. Is it even called a soundtrack? In the record sleeve. And I would read along and I would read ahead and reading through songs really helped me learn how to read. Why am I telling you all this? There's a reason why. Another way that I would teach reading in first grade was through guided reading. Guided reading was when we would all sit at a table and I would find out what their reading level was at the beginning of the year. And it was through Fountas and Pinnell reading levels. So they would be level A was very simple text, like the cat likes to run. And then level I, J, K, L was more complex, probably four or five sentences on a page, still a picture, but the picture was smaller. Whereas on the level A books, it would be the cat likes to run. And then this huge picture of a cat running. And so we would give them assessments and find out what their reading level was and what books they could read on their instructional level. Because you don't want to get them too easy. You don't want to get them too hard. You want to give them just right. Just like Goldilocks is what I always explain. You want to find the just right books. Because if they're too easy, it's boring. If it's too hard, it's frustrating. Very frustrating. And so we'd find the just right books for them. And then in a group, we'd all read the same book together. And so I would be demonstrating similar reading behaviors. And they were all reading similar levels of text. And the text was easy enough for them to read. But I was also giving them a lot of support. So you wanted them to be able to read 90 to 95% of the book. So on those words that were challenging, I was there for support. And then they had their friends. And then they'd say, what are you doing when you don't know that word? And so we would break it down. And that was where I was teaching them reading strategies. Because I would still teach reading strategies in the shared reading. And reading strategies, there were so many to teach. It was, uh, we could chunk the word. That was one of my favorite things to do. Like the word upstream. I would find the word up. I don't know what stream. I don't know how to sound that out. But I know the word up. So we would chunk words and we would circle words with chalk in the big book. Or we'd use these things called wiki sticks. I just remembered that. And if the word was monopoly. We would find the word on in there and say, okay, and mon, that looks like Monday. So we would use wiki sticks were like these sticky sticks that stuck to the pages, almost like sticky notes, and we would circle the words we did know. That's called chunking. We could sound it out. We could look at picture clues like the cat is running. So we could say, okay, well, we don't say kitten. And then we could say, okay, we could um, count syllables. Like if we're looking at the word and it's, it could be cat or kitten, what word makes more sense? There's only three letters. So does that look more like cat or kitten? So you'd really break it down, break it down, baby, bubba. You'd really break it down for them. So there was many, many strategies we taught them. So we would might say, use context clues. What would make sentence, what would make sense in the sentence? We use sounding it out, making predictions, finding words we did know, using context clues, rereading the text to make sure it made sense. Because if we're saying the cat likes to drop, that doesn't make any sense. So we want to make sure we're not just reading and reciting words, but it's really making sense. That is what we would do at the guided reading table. We would sit there, give them strategies. I was giving them strategies in shared reading, but I was more through modeling. Or I'd ask them, like, what do you do when you get to a word you don't know? And this is what good readers do. We'd say that over and over and over. Good readers look for words they know in advance. Good readers use context clues. Good readers make sure it makes sense. Good readers sound it out. Good readers read with expression. Good readers make predictions. Good readers use inference skills. So these are all things that we taught during shared reading and during guided reading. And then this is when I feel like the magic happens. 
and happened was during independent reading time. So sometimes we'd have drop everything and read for deer. Sometimes I would have a gumball game where they'd go home and they'd read stories and then they would write summaries about the story that they read at home independently, those just right books. And then when they brought in the summaries, they would get a paper gumball. And then we put this on this huge gumball machine. And the more books you read, the more and summaries you wrote, the more gumballs you got. And so we had this huge paper gumball machine on the wall and kids were cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs to get their gumballs. There was so many gumballs that we filled up the gumballs and they were literally spilling over and they were all over the wall and the ceiling around the door. Gumballs galore. And then we would have contests to see who could win a gumball machine or gumball machines or gumballs. And so it was a really fun way to get them to practice the reading. Because if I want to learn how to, let's say, snowboard, and I watch all the movies, and I watch all the things on YouTube, and I watch my instructor do it, and I watch David do it, and I read about it, and I find it, and I read what is hard about snowboarding, I don't actually learn how to snowboard until I get out, and I get on that snowboard, and I fall my face flat in the snow. And all those videos and all those instructors help me to get even standing up, but I'm still going to fall a lot. And that's okay. That's how I learn. So you can learn something conceptually, but it doesn't really take hold of your life until you start practicing it. And so independent reading was that time for them to read those just right books that were just not too hard, not too easy, but just right, kind of like the porridge with Goldilocks. And that's when they would find their love for reading, figure out topics they like to read. Even if they're reading magazines, at least they're reading and practicing those skills that they learned during shared reading and guided reading. And so that's when they learned their independence. They learned, I can do this. They learned so much confidence with this independent reading and even getting their gumballs. Then they might teach and they might buddy read where they're reading with another buddy and they're teaching their friends how to read. So the level of reading and their understanding just got deeper and deeper. Okay, I say all of this not because you're a teacher and need to know what we did to teach reading, but I want you to apply these same techniques when you're teaching emotional literacy to your children. What is emotional literacy? Emotional literacy is the ability to self-regulate their emotions. I'm not reading that. I'm just enunciating it so you really, really understand. The same way you teach literacy literacy is the same way you teach emotional literacy. And so I want you to pretend that your house, your four walls, the energy in with your home is an emotional literacy lab. Your only job is to teach them that these are the emotions you're going to feel in life. They are completely normal. And here are some strategies when you have these emotions. When kids are flipping out, don't look at the flipping out. Look at the fact that they have an emotion and they don't know what to do with. And like I always say, I'm 45 and I still have emotions sometimes that I don't know what to do with. So if you look at shared reading, it's very much like monkey see, monkey do. What does mom do when she's when she spills water in the kitchen? Or what does she do if she drops a dish? What does mom do if someone cuts her off in line in traffic? Now, a lot of you will say, well, what about my husband? What about my husband? We're not focused on his side of the street. We're only focused on your side of the street, assuming you're the mom. If you're the dad, you're only focused on your side of the street. So what does the parent that I'm watching do when my sibling is in trouble, when my sibling makes a bad choice? If she's losing it and screaming and yelling, then that tells me that I need to scream and yell. So this is where modeling comes from. Shared reading is just like shared emotional reading. They're reading our emotions to see how we handle it. This is very good news for us 
because they will be like monkey see, monkey do. So you don't worry about them as a monkey. You focus on your side of the street and how you're handling your emotions. And a lot of us were never taught how to handle our emotions and our big feelings and these big vibrations going through our body. We learn through trial and error. What does mom do when people gossip about her? What does mom do when she gets excluded from a friendship group and they had a baby shower? What does she do when someone's unkind to her when she's at at TJ Maxx or the employee is rushed and harried with her or yelling at her because she didn't get in line fast enough? What does mom do when she wants to skip her workout and not choose something hard? What does mom do when she wants to lie about something, but she chooses not to lie? Lily's my accountability partner with my running, and I have a half marathon this weekend, so the training gets harder and harder and harder. And so I model for them all the time of how hard it is to go and do the thing that I've never done before and how my brain tries to stop me and how I'm stalling. And I ask for them for help. So they're almost like my coach, because when you teach something, you learn something on a much deeper level. So they're learning as they're teaching me. And they're like, whoa, this is hard for mom. And then in that process, it normalizes it for them that when they're going to do their multiplication or reading a book that's too hard or going to talk to a friend that they've never met before to sit at their table, It's all supposed to be hard, and then it starts to feel very easy. So Lily is my accountability partner, and so I had to run by, I think it was 10 o'clock in the morning. If I didn't run by 10 o'clock in the morning, she was going to text me from school, and if I hadn't finished my run by 10 in the morning, then I had to do her laundry for the whole week. No bueno. And then if I did run by 10 in the morning, then she was going to do my laundry for the whole week because I was really having a hard time. It was like a big run. So she texts me at like 10.01, did you do your run yet? And I'm sitting at the counter of my kitchen and I have not even moved because I stalled and stalled and stalled and stalled. And so I told her when she got home, I said, no, I didn't. Um, I did and I have to do your laundry. I can't believe it. All, 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 you know, and then she got home. I said, I said, you know how badly I wanted to lie? Because I could have easily told her I went for the run. I could have showed her my sneakers outside and just been like, yeah, I finished. I'm so proud of myself. She would have never questioned it. She trusts me completely. She's not looking for evidence. But I told her when she got home, I said, I really wanted to lie to you because I knew you'd never find out and I really didn't want to do your laundry for the day. So I'm actually normalizing lying that you will be tempted to lie. And I said, the reason why I didn't lie is because I didn't want to take marbles out of our trust jar, even though you would have never known. And I didn't want the karma that comes around with lying and the guilt that I have if I did tell you that lie, it would have been so strong. It wasn't worth it. It's better to do your laundry than to feel that guilt. And she just laughed it off and everything. But what I'm doing in that process is there are going to be times that you're going to want to lie to mom or dad or to your friend or to your brother or to your future husband or your boyfriend or whoever it is. You're going to have that urge. And oh, mom has that urge too. Then they're not having guilt and shame about it. And the reason why mom didn't lie was because she didn't want to deal with the after effects. She didn't want to deal with the guilt. She didn't want to deal with the karma. She didn't want to take marbles out of the jar of our trust that we have built in our relationship. But I normalize that desire because sometimes we're like, don't ever lie, don't ever lie, don't ever lie. Sometimes it's easier to lie. It would have been much easier to lie about that run that she would have never found out about and I wouldn't have to do her laundry. Oh, and P.S., she would have been doing my laundry. That would have been beautiful. But there's just, I said, there's just no way I could have lived with that guilt. So I'm normalizing it. It's normal to want to sometimes. And what does mom do with her anxiety? Sometimes I have so much anxiety, I don't even know what to do with it. So I just sit with it and I allow it. I don't resist it and push it away. I'm like, oh, I guess I woke up with anxiety today. Huh, wasn't expecting that. Or sometimes I'll go to sleep and I'll have this heavy burden on my chest and and this heavy weight and I don't even know what it's for or what it's from. Sometimes I want to forebode joy. And I'm like, "Uh huh, I guess I have anxiety today. I'm just going to sit with it. 
I feel nervous about something. And sometimes I feel like this little buzz going through my body and I don't know why. So I normalize it. So then when they have that about a test or about a game, my dad used to say, if you feel nervous before a soccer game, that means you care. And I was like, what he was doing for me was he was normalizing anxiety and nervousness and he didn't even know he was doing it. So I've always been very okay with feeling nervous or unexplained anxiety for no reason. I don't push it away because that pushing it away causes more pain and that resistance versus just allowing it and breathing into it. Then I can allow it and teach my kids how to breathe into it. And so that's how shared reading looks like when you're creating an emotional literacy lab within your home. Shared literacy is shared emotional literacy. What does mom do? Monkey see, monkey do. You're not controlling their side of the street. You're only focused on your side of the street. And when you do that, then you're not focused so much on the apples in the tree because they always say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You're not focused on the apples. You're focused on the tree and what they're absorbing from you. Because like I said, they're quicker picker-uppers. They're always absorbing all of our energy, all of our lessons, all of our nonverbal, all of our communication. What does mom do when she has a lot on her to-do list? How does she manage overwhelm? How does she manage her time? What does mom do? Because that's what I'm going to do. Because that's the only way right now that they know. And then as they get older, they can get more creative. And so guided reading looks the same way within the house. But now it's more shared. We're, get, we're guiding it together. So if we're having an interaction together, like Lily gets super nervous about being late for volleyball. That's a big fear for her. Even though sometimes practice is only, I think it's a six minute drive to practice. And if she has practice at six, she wants to leave at 5.30. So she starts buzzing around, getting super anxious, super anxiety, lots of nervous energy that she's going to be late. I don't want to be late. I don't want to be late. I'm like, it's 5.30. There's no talking reason into her at the time. I'm just holding space. I'm like, you seem like you're feeling nervous about running late. She's like, I really am. I really am. I really am. So then we figure out a win-win. Like leaving at 5.30 for a six-minute drive probably isn't going to work, but leaving at 5.50 isn't going to work. So how can we come up with a win-win? I'm normalizing her energy. I'm coming up with a win-win. I'm supporting her and holding the space and not giving into like, well, you said this and you said that. I've done that and I've gone down that road. It is a lose-lose because she's in that panicked energy. There is no talking sense into her. I always use the connection of it's like our kids are had too much to drink and then we're trying to reason with them and give them consequences and we're trying to like have a normal conversation. What's happening is they're in their lower part of the brain and we want to reason with them. That, my friend, will not happen. You hold space, and when you're holding space, you sober them up. And if they're not in the mood to talk, and it's like adding gas on the fire, you just give them their space. Sometimes holding the space gives them their space. Not meaning go to your room. It's like, do you need help calming down, or do you want to calm down by yourself? And they're like, I'm out of here. And then when they come out and they sober up, that's when Lily's like, I'm sorry, I was acting like that at the house. I just I just get so worried that I'm going to be late and then I'm not going to set up the the nets. And I'm like, oh, I get that too. But I get that about different things. I'm like, what do you see me getting in about when you see me get all frazzled about stuff? And she's like, when you have too many emails, I'm like, that's true, I do. So I'm turning this around and I'm like, when do you see this in me? Because then I'm dropping my ego instead of being like, you know, you really shouldn't. And you really, like, I do that too. When do you see me do that? Because sometimes I'm so in it that I don't even, I can't even see the forest through the trees. And she's like, when you open your email and you have 75 email, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so when I do it. I didn't even realize that. So when I'm exposing my blind spots through her exploration and her telling me, then she's more open for me to say that to her. And we're having a great conversation on the way to volleyball versus like, hurry, 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 when it's a six-minute drive. So you see how guided reading, we're kind of doing it together and lots of support and things on her level. 
My emails stress me out if I have too many and I'm falling behind and it's like, help me, Kelly, help me, Kelly, help me, Kelly, help me, Kelly. And she feels overwhelmed and a lot of anxiety and nervousness if she's running late for volleyball. So she's drunk on emotion about something. And I get drunk on emotion too, just about different things. So we're kind of helping each other out and we're creating more strategies within that guided reading experience or that guided literacy experience or that guided emotional literacy experience. And then the beauty happens when they are independently reading or they're independently handling their emotions. As they get older, they're away from you a lot more. They're at play dates, which we can't call them anymore at nine and 12. They're now called hangouts or a getty, like get together. Um, they're at school a lot more. They're at their friend's house. When they get older, they might have a boyfriend or they might have a girlfriend. And so what are they doing to manage those emotions when their boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't follow their manual or they have expectations or they feel jealous? The more we can normalize it when they're younger, then when they become more independent and are feeling these emotions, they're at a play date, they're on the playground, they're in the band, they're on the fields, they're striking out, they're missing the spike. They're missing the open goal. They're missing the penalty kick. That's when they're going to practice all this emotion and they're going to practice it independent of us. Sometimes we're around, sometimes we're not. What about when they're in the play and they forget their lines? It's all been normalized for so long that independently they can manage their emotions. Just normally in life, how are we modeling the 50-50 experience that you have to have the polarity of the positive and the negative to appreciate the positive? We got a we got a, a war, Grady got an award last month that he got student of the month. And we're like, woohoo. He pulled it down in his pulled it out in his folder and we're like, yeah, buddy. High five and all the things. And then the next piece of paper, please come in for a conference because we want to have we have academic concerns for you, for your son. And I was like, huh, this is what the 50-50 experience is all about. I love it. Let's go. I can't wait to see what the academic concerns are while we're celebrating the student of the month. Do you see how you can have both and live in that polarity and then appreciate the good? And then when the, what so to speak, negative comes up where they don't make the team or they strike out or they miss the goal or they have a breakup or someone doesn't sit with them at lunch or I forget to pack their sandwich and lunch. When they're dealing with disappointment, then it's like, oh, this is part of the human experience. I've done this a million times in shared reading and in guided reading and in shared literacy and guided literacy. And in shared emotional literacy, and I've seen it in guided emotional literacy. I saw my mom do this. I saw my dad do this. So this is all normal. And look at this. I have lots of strategies to pull from because during calm waters, when they're younger, you can role play galore with stuffed animals, and they have so many different strategies to pull from. The strategies that Grady uses are much different than the strategies that Lily uses. And that's okay. I had 20 students in my first grade classroom. They were all using different strategies. Guess who has to have the strategies first? That would be me because I can't teach something I don't know how to do first. That's why I meditate. That's why I journal. That's why I have a gratitude journal. That's why I lean into my anxiety. I don't hold the beach ball underneath water. I don't have shame and guilt because I'm having a complex emotion. I'm like, oh, this is part of the human experience. This is what I signed up for. And guess what? I had kids to sign them up for the same class. Their reasons for feeling those big emotions are completely different, but they're still valid. You always want to connect before you correct. Whenever they're having an outburst, go straight to the emotion. What emotion are they having? Then you'll be like, oh, this is the emotional literacy lab that Kelly was talking about. Okay, let's do this. Is this guided emotional literacy? Is this independent 
emotional literacy or is this shared emotional literacy? What are they picking up from me? How can I improve my side of the street? How can I regulate my emotions more? How can I teach them more strategies through modeling? Because there is no more powerful teaching tool than the way you model. So then when they go out to do the snowboard, or they go out to have those emotions, or they go out and they have the breakup, or they have the feeling of left out, or they get the F, or they don't make the team, or they miss their note when they're playing the flute. They're like, oh, this is completely normal. I don't need to beat myself up and have shame and guilt about it. This is part of the human experience because our 18 years, let's assume after 18 years, they're grown and flown. I want them to have so many strategies, but not only strategies, I want them to feel like it's normal to have the negative emotions because if they think there's something wrong with them, then when they get older, they have shame and guilt for having basic human emotions. And then they want to smoke those feelings away, shop those feelings away, eat those feelings away, get that shot of dopamine to pile on top of the complex emotions. And then what you have is double suffering. So I want you to create a home in which an emotional literacy lab is created just like I did in the classroom, just like your students are going to school and having that varied experience. And they're all different ages and they're all different sizes. So everything looks different in different homes based on their ages and stages and where they are on the continuum. Are they reading level A at emotional literacy or are they reading level HIJ on the emotional literacy lab? You get to measure that, not with judgment, but with curiosity and say, okay, how can I help them with their anxiety? Oh, I can look at my anxiety. Oh, how can I help them with their ADD? Oh, I can look at my ADD and my attention to focus. Okay, this is really good news because then the children don't have to change at all because you're only focused on your side of the street. So thank you for sharing this podcast episode and all the others. And I will talk to you next week. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Hey, mamas, thanks for listening. If you had any ahas, clicks, or those lightning bolt moments while listening, you have to check out my free parenting bootcamp where we take all of this to the next level and we try to create even more awakenings for ourselves so that we can connect more with our kids and never yell at them again. You can sign up at www.coachingkelly.com. And if you really want to fill up my love cup, send me an email of what your aha was, what your click was, what was that lightning bolt resonating moment while you were listening. I want nothing more in life than for you to have harmony in your home and to learn how to be an imperfect mom like me, which allows your kids to be imperfect too, each and every day. Thanks for listening.